I have to admit that I'm smiling at the beautiful worship. I'm smiling at uh, the beautiful, just brave. Does anybody sing that song better than Madge? And Glory with Alex and John. And I'm also mourning today. I'm mourning today for the people in Indianapolis, for the sick American. I'm mourning today for the possibility that that was a hate crime. I'm mourning today for a nation that's more concerned about the right to bear arms than it is for people to have the right to live more concerned. Yes, I'm also concerned about birth rights, but more concerned about the, the people who are alive, who might die at the hands of gun violence. I'm mourning today for Adam Toledo with his family. I'm mourning for a child shot dead. I'm mourning for Dante Wright, a mama's boy shot dead. I'm mourning for a burned sanctuary, if I'm honest. When I see these beautiful images, I sometimes can't breathe because some choice is made that doesn't choose fixing stuff in the building next door. And so then our sanctuary burns down. I'm mourning for my neighbors who lived in that building who still don't have a place to live, who remain homeless because the owner of that building won't put them in another building, which she owns, which she could. I'm mourning because we don't really believe that we are our brothers and sisters keepers or those aren't the kinds of choices we make. And those of you who heard my brother speak today, April's just tough, I'm mourning my mom. Born on April 11th, died on April 25th, anniversary on April 20th. That whole month is just full of the sorrow of four years of living life without her. I miss her. I miss her face. I miss her heart. I miss how she was, for all of my life, a kind of compass a cue for how to feel watching her face was like watching a window to the world. I miss her, especially at this point in my life when, when the world is just on fire. How many deaths unavoidable to COVID-19? How many disproportionately black and brown and frankly, friends, more Hispanic people, a whole generation of Hispanic men dead. As I mourn the loss of the church, as we mourn the loss of civility, as violence rises against our AAPI family, it's heartbreaking as an angry mob beats its way into the nation's capital. And somehow that was just like a protest. I, I just, I miss her. And I'm sad that as the trial of, of children who just squeezed the life out of George Floyd with his hands casually in his pocket. And we wonder if we actually will see not justice because it won't be justice because George Floyd's not coming back, but our 
our social justice system, our criminal justice system, just the name is criminal, it's on trial. And as we wait to find out if black grief matters, if black deaths matter, I think to myself, God, mommy, I wish you were here so I could tell you how tired I am, how damn tired I am of living in a country that treats black grief as a threat and white rage as a sacrament. What do I mean? I mean, the contrast between the treatment of the capital insurrectionists versus my own experience in the same building with a mixed race bunch of protesters is stark. There we were outside of the office of Mitch McConnell with a group of multi-ethnic leaders, all of us demanding to have the Republican-led Senate not take away the Affordable Care Act at that point. We stood outside of McConnell's office singing, singing with passion, waiting for the signal that we could stay as long as we needed to, just the right moment. And then the Capitol Police were, were, were going to come and arrest us, but those police were not opening up barriers for us. They weren't handing us water. They weren't high-fiving us. They were not gently pointing the way for us. We were too black, too brown, too queer for that. Though our protest was both peaceful and permitted, we knew the very fact that black people were with us, that we were black-led, Reverend Barber and I, uh, we knew that we were in danger. Protesting is a dangerous act when you're black and brown in this nation. In the immediate aftermath, after the disturbing events at the Capitol in January, many pundits were wringing their hands and saying, you know, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. This is precisely who we are. This is exactly who we are. We are the nation that builds itself on violence and death. We are the church interlaced with white supremacy. That's who we are, white rage, white grievance, white entitlement, have always been privileged over black grief, black justice, black lives, black well-being, black resilience, black surviving. So I'm saddened by the images played over and over again on the news. I, I can hardly take seeing those images, the people climbing up the steps of the Capitol with the Confederate flags, but these are not new images. They are not new phenomenon, the, the, the look of dead bodies rotting and the look of white supremacy celebrating. I remember when I was 16 and doing a research paper, it was the first time I saw the picture of 14-year-old Emmett Till. Do y'all remember that picture? In the Jet magazine, the Ebony magazine, his mama insisted that the casket be open, his lynched body in a photo spread in the Jet magazine. Mamie's there in the picture too, crying. His picture's up on the back of the cast. There he is, a boy, bloated body, missing eye. Horrific picture. She wanted us to see what it meant to be black and young in Mississippi in those days. A Chicago boy hanging out in the South, not quite trained how not to be sassy or whatever was his crime, just being young and black. Whistling at the woman, she since recanted his death evidence of how much blackness is loathed in this nation. How many times have we seen those pictures? How many images did I watch with my mom? Folks marching across the Pettus Memorial Bridge or young people sitting at the lunch counters, glass ketchup bottles and salt bottles crashed over their heads. Children integrating schools spat at, 
rocks thrown at them. Why? Because whiteness despises blackness. Closer to home, I watched police beat the stew out of the neighbor across the street, a black man, beautiful, smart, strong black man who looked out for us when we were outside playing. And I remember standing on my porch saying, Daddy, what did he do? What did he do? We have family who got spanked sometimes. You know, you might get spanked for being bad. Child's understanding thinking he must have done something really terrible for this to happen. What did he do, Daddy? He did not pay his traffic tickets. Maybe you're selling cigarettes or CDs. Maybe you're sitting in your car playing music too loud. Maybe, maybe you have a toy gun outside. Maybe you're walking with Skittles and iced tea. Maybe you allegedly passed a fake $20 bill and you just didn't move fast enough. Nine minutes and 29 seconds of torture because it could happen and it did happen. I'm talking about white rage, y'all. White rage, white rage, white rage at the loss of power, white rage at the loss of entitlement, white rage at the growing and numbers of black and brown people, white rage, white rage about having less votes than used to be had, white rage inciting riot, white rage screaming and crying about Jews and blacks and Muslims and queers. White rage is why the Klan grew up in the church. White rage is why a law has been passed to not take water and food to the black aunties and uncles that will be voting in Georgia. White rage is why there are over 150 laws on the books. White rage is why strange fruit hang from Southern trees. White churchgoers watching and taking pictures with their little babies on their shoulders, help us, Holy Spirit. White rage produced the brutal response to black success in Tulsa. It cries foul when black students get into Ivy League schools. It spreads suspicion about the legitimacy of the first black presidency. And white rage turned violent when black trans and queer Kids dare to walk down the street in joyful freedom. The joy itself seems to incite the rage. Chance of Black Lives Matter causes enraged white people to counter with all lives matter when they know it's a lie because the black life doesn't count. What they really mean is that if a black life matters, then maybe their white life doesn't matter enough because of course mattering is some kind of zero sum game. White rage turns violent towards protesters in every generation who demand human rights, who demand freedom. Freedom sticks in the throat of white supremacy. 
And if we dare to call it the light is we risk life. But the story of white supremacy is as American as apple pie. Thomas Jefferson himself spoke of it in notes on the state of Virginia. He itemized the many ways that blacks are not as beautiful, not as wonderful, not as smart, not as loving, not as deeply feeling as whites, and even speculated that our grief, our grief is transient. We're so much like animals, we don't even feel loss. Not for long. But oh, how wrong he was. Black grief, my grief, your grief, Black people, is not transient. It's generational. It's incarnate in our bodies. We wrap it. We sing about it. We write about it. We dance to it. We take it to the streets. We teach our children how to grieve and be resilient. Yet when we do so, our grief is often met with disdain. We're told to get over it. When Black Reef shows up in the office and dares to speak up, demanding the glass ceiling be shattered, the Black, the backlash from white rage interprets that grief as too angry. The Black employee isn't a team player, can't be coached, can't be promoted. And in this way, Black grief, which of course is angry, is shut down and cut off. And the result is that the grief rots and depresses and kills our souls. It causes our children to turn toward each other, the closest person with whom to act out the grief and sometimes cause harm. I wanna to suggest today though that black grief isn't transient, it's prophetic. Thinking about my friend, Microwave Matthews and my friend, Otis Moss and his father, Prophetic grief knows how to weep, how to wipe tears, and then how to organize for justice. It's persistent and it knows how to keep its eyes on the prize and hold on. Black grief knows more than any other kind of grief that we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the death and the life of one black mother's child matters as much as a white mother's child. Black grief is resilient because it knows the art of the moral universe bends towards justice and nothing, nothing is going to turn us around. Black grief finally gives way to joy because the weeping comes and lasts for a season. Joy always comes in the morning. We who are gathered here this morning are gathered here from many tribes, from many corners of the earth, bringing our hopes and our dreams, our, our issues, our problems, the things we hope we can fix in the world. And we know that there are many reasons that human beings fight with one another, persecute one another, kill one another. But I'm here to suggest that race, race, what we call race in America, tops the list. As psychologist Robert Carter puts it, race is a different difference, a different difference. But that also means that if we can find our way to healing on this big and thorny issue. If friends, we can have the courageous imagination to make racial justice an everyday spiritual practice, we will have changed our view of humanity and the view of the world that we inhabit. We can change our circumstances if we can disrupt racism, 
if we can dis disrupt racial prejudice, if we can make choices based on fairness and equality, I believe we will have cleared the way to resolving all of the issues related to race. Housing patterns, incarceration patterns, economic disparity, educational disparity, healthcare disparity, environmental disparity are all tied up in caste discrimination and xenophobia. Therefore, race is worthy of our time and attention. It is worthy of special and specific focus. Howard Zinn wrote, there is no country in the world in which racism has been more important for so long as here in the United States. And the problem of the color line, as W.E.B. Du Bois put it, is still with us. We must critique our racist culture in which being black is a pre-existing condition for poverty, discrimination, and death. We must understand that anti-Black racism is a festering sore, a putrid hole in the soul of America that will heal only when our shared commitment to imagining another way pushes us to be courageous, pushes us to love in new ways. And we have to walk that path with furious intention. Yes. This is work for our electives, absolutely for sure. But we cannot abdicate the responsibilities wholly to them. We, as my people, mi gente said, <coughs> we are the ones we've been waiting for. We're the ones that have to write a new American story to find a way to build fierce love in the world. And by fierce love, I mean the kind of love that is talked about in all of the major world religions. The kind of love that asks us love our people, our brothers, our sisters, our posses, as we love ourselves. I'm talking about making that kind of love an everyday spiritual practice, like flossing and brushing our teeth, like praying or meditating or doing yoga. We can make choices toward justice and fairness and equality. If we can do that, then we can make the world better tomorrow for the children that we're called to love. We can help our children's dreams come true. We're called, we're called, in fact, to love fiercely our neighbors as ourselves. This is the true meaning of religion, which in essence means to bind ourselves together, to relegate, to become bound to each other. That's what religion is about. That's what faith is about. There's truest sense. We should be connected to one another we who say we have lives of faith to each other, to creation, to the world. Religion should connect us to the source of our being. Religion should help us listen to the calling of our better angels. Religion should improve our Ubuntu sensibility. What do I mean by Ubuntu? It's, it's the Zulu word for human. It actually means a person is a person through other persons. A person is human through other humans. In this, in this sense that Ubuntu realizes, articulates that we are bound to one another, that our thriving and our surviving will only happen because 
we do it together. And you and I know how much religion has been weaponized, how much it works against this feeling of inextricable connection. It pits us against each other rather than pulling us toward one another. And as a Christian clergy, I'm ashamed of all the things that my tribe has done in the name of Jesus. Jews exterminated in the name of Jesus. Muslims tortured in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Jewish baby who was at one time homeless and at another time a refugee, refugees left outside in the cold in the name of Jesus. Slavery in the name of Jesus. Anti-gay violence, anti-trans violence in the name of Jesus. I'm so ashamed of what's happened to the world in the name of Christianity. I'm telling you, Christianity needs an exorcism. Somebody say amen. And in the name and in the interest of exercising hate, I find myself preaching another religion, a new religion, a religion that's simply called love, like a fierce love that I believe can be a faith for all of us to believe in, whether we're theist or not. Can we find ourselves leaning into love, becoming love itself as a way to heal ourselves and to heal the world? In fact, sometimes I tell my congregation in a benediction, go out in the world and make love everywhere. Ha ha, make love everywhere. I don't think it's because I've lost my religion, it's that I've put down, I've put down the places and spaces of my faith that, that are hypocritical, that are screwed up, that are heterosexist and, and, and don't believe in women's rights. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. And, and I can't quite frankly preach it anymore. And so I'm, I'm admitting to you today but I'm, I'm here to convert you. I'm here to, I'm here to proselytize. I'm here to ask you to join me in the kind of religion that a little tribe of, 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 of children in an African village know about. They were being studied by a white anthropologist, a woman who came to study what Ubuntu meant. And she decided at the end of the study to, to reward these kids so she put a bag of candy out on a table and, and told them, you know, on your marsh get set, go race. And whoever gets there first gets the candy. Now these are poor children in an African village. And they did not run to the candy. They reached across and grabbed each other's hands and they walked to the candy. And when they got to the candy, <laughs> they shared up the candy amongst themselves. They lived Ubuntu, they lived love, the kind of love that Wesley read about today in the scriptures. Now this is a Christian text and we could say it's for Christian people, but the writer of 1 John is saying, those who live in love live in God and God lives in them. Those who live inside love all who live inside love, live in God and God lives in them. The writer was trying to remind his Jewish audience and his newly converted uh, you know, Gentile audience 
about the story, the story of God's people being on the move in the desert and building a tabernacle, a little house in which they could take God with them. They took God with them across the desert so they'd always have the presence of God with them. And the writer of 1 John is saying, now you're the house in which God lives, people. You're the place in which God resides. You, when you love, are the tabernacle of God. We don't need a tabernacle. We don't need a synagogue. We don't need a church. You're it. You're the place where God lives. This old wise writer is saying, this kind of love, this agape love, this Ubuntu love, when we live it, we house the holy. And not only we, our neighbors house the holy. And so the writer is saying, this kind of love isn't just about you and God, my people. This kind of love is about you and your neighbor. The relationship is horizontal. You can't say you love God and hate your brother and sister. When you do that, you lie. So don't come up in here, Christians, saying you love your neighbor and you can't wait to kill some black folks. Don't say, Christians, you love your neighbor when you're thinking about to undo the people who, who live around you. Don't say you love God, people, when you're trying to live out policies that punish the poor. Don't say you love God, my people when you hate the queer, hate the woman, hate the Muslim, hate the Jew, hate the outsider, hate the stranger. It's just not true. To love God is to love the other, even if the other is inside you. I'm asking us today to get honest, to get real, to get true. Love is hard work. I have a friend who heard one of my sermons recently. I guess I had said the word they too, too many times. And she called me on it and said, you who are preaching love, I'm feeling a little bit like you're trying to leave out the they who don't agree with you. I was like, oh, that's not true. But it was. I was drawing a line in the sand. I was thinking to myself, how am I gonna love those insurrectionists, those people, those Christians who don't believe Jesus was about justice, those white people, those white people who oppress my people. How am I gonna love them? when they hate us. Well, damn it, I'm not called to go sit down and have coffee with them, but I am called, if I'm gonna follow Rabbi Jesus, to try to find a way to love the hell out of them, to try to find a way to speak truth to power, to find a way to have conversations I don't wanna have, I don't want to have those conversations, to get outside of my echo chamber and try to engage the one who disagrees with me and see if we can't find common ground. Where's the place where we can make a just society for our children? How can we engage each other across our disagreements and make freedom a shared objective? I can't do that 
if I don't talk to them. And I can't talk to them if I don't engage them. And I won't engage them if I don't admit that they are in fact also God's children and find a way to love them. I'm talking about me. But if that shoe fits you, then I'm talking about you too. And to be honest, though this text is written in the Christian scriptures, every single major religion says, do unto other as you would have them do unto you. Don't do that to the one that you don't want to have done to yourself. It is a ubiquitous call to love each other, written in all of the scriptures that we call holy. And so I'm saying this is a universal problem and a universal opportunity. Can we imagine, can we courageously imagine that the person we dislike the most, the one that we have the most disdain for is in fact cousin, auntie, friend, love. Can we, as my friend Valerie says, see no stranger, can we link arms and heal this world or it will die and we will die in it. I'm so sad today about all the death around us. I'm so angry today at the way hatred causes us to hate and hate and hate like a spiral that we can't get out of. And I'm asking you to join me in a risky place, in a courageous place, maybe even in a dangerous place, to face our fears, to move toward one another, to try to join hands with our enemies or our opponents and to love each other into freedom. That kind of love isn't for wimps. It is fierce. It is ferocious. It is risk-taking. It requires humility. It makes us have to admit when we're wrong. It causes us to move toward the center. It will make us create a new nation. I'm trying to do that. I hope you'll come. May it be so.